Good. It's great to see you. Um, my name is Grant Ryder. I'm our community director here. And um, as you probably have guessed by now, Pastor Matt, our lead pastor, is away for the week. Um, so I have the privilege of kind of stepping in and opening up God's Word with you this morning, which I'm excited to do. Um, if you have been with us for a few weeks or more, um, or even if this is your first time, as you see, um, we're in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, it's been a great series so far. Pastor Matt has done a great job leading us through that and challenging us with some honest thoughts that this book presents. And today we're going to continue uh, in this book. And as we get going, question for you. How many of you know the name Marcus Person? Nobody. Same with the first service. Um, that's okay. Marcus Person was actually the founder and developer of a really popular video game called Minecraft. Any of you heard of that? Okay. I've never played it. I don't really know much about it. Um, But what I do know is that this game was, and it may still be, but a few years or so ago, it became really, really popular. uh, To the point that Microsoft wanted to buy this game and purchase it from um, Marcus. And so Marcus, like any of us would probably do. He sold the game to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. And instantly, because of that, Marcus became one of the wealthiest people around and had the world literally at his fingertips. And he began to enjoy that newfound success. Um, But after a little bit of time had passed, he kind of started reflecting a little bit um, on this new season of his life. And he actually sent out Um, A a string of tweets um, that kind of uh, are reflective of where he was at in his life at this time. And I'll just read a couple of them for you so you get kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, The first one said this. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. And then soon after that, he sent out another one. It said this, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. How is it that someone can have all the money, fame, and time in the world, and yet still feel like something is so deeply missing from their life? According to Marcus, he had everything except real relationships in his life. And as he showed in those tweets, that left him feeling pretty empty and isolated. You may not have found the level of success that Marcus had, uh, but maybe you're here today and you're feeling something similar to him. Maybe the demands of work and a busy schedule have kind of left you feeling disconnected and out of sync with other people. Or maybe you've been hurt by some past relationships, uh, and so the idea of opening yourself up to others kind of sounds intimidating, maybe a little bit fearful. Or maybe you really do believe that going it alone is the best way and that other people just slow you down. Wherever you're at in there, maybe somewhere else, um, the book of Ecclesiastes has some really honest and practical thoughts for us to consider on this subject this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. 
Uh, otherwise, the words will be up here on the screen uh, and, and behind me, and you can follow along there. <clears throat> but if you've been with us in this series for any time, you know that the book of Ecclesiastes is a very honest book. It takes a really hard, real look at some difficult dimensions of life. And that's actually one of the things I really appreciate the most about this book. Um, I feel like the author, who we believe potentially could have been King Solomon, and that's who I'll refer to throughout the sermon, um, but he's willing to stop and take an honest look at life and try to find meaning and significance in some really difficult areas. Well, today we're going to jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 4, like I said. And if you remember from last week, Pastor Matt uh, covered the first three verses of the chapter. And he was talking about the fact that uh, we long for justice. But so often what we find is oppression. And we find injustice. And in light of that, Solomon in verse 3 of the beginning of this chapter says that it's better if a person had never been born. That way they don't have to experience this. They don't have to see this and wrestle with the evil and the oppression that's done every single day on this earth under the sun. And yet, amid his anguish at kind of seeing all this and knowing this, he turns in this next section that we're going to look at today to talk about a subject that I know has touched each and every one of our lives. And I know he gets to the heart of something that you and I desperately need. This passage has caused me to wrestle a lot this week and re-examine some areas of my life. So for what it's worth, I'd encourage you to just be open to whatever God may have for you in this text this morning. So without more being said, let's jump in. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 4. It says this, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So the author, Solomon, he's kind of speaking generally here, right? And in this section, he begins to kind of examine the nature of work, toil, labor, and the pursuit of success and achievement. But you'll see he's doing it through the lens of its effect on human relationships. And that's really important as we kind of continue to move forward. And right out of the gates, as we see in this first line, um, he tells us that work, labor, and that pursuit of success and achievement, it's rooted in one person's envy of another. In other words, the main motivation behind work is human rivalry. In light of all the human energy that's poured into hours and hours of work in a lifetime, Solomon takes a step back and he looks beneath the surface and what he sees is that in the human heart, there's a restless desire to outclass other people. And maybe some of you have experienced that. But I find this observation really interesting, especially in terms of our very individualistic, often materialistic Western society. I mean, when you think about it, what he's saying here is what keeping up with the Joneses is all about, right? Every day we're given cultural messages that tell us that the good life is comprised of wealth, comfort, 
material possessions, unlimited access to whatever you want, whenever you want, and so much more. You can fill in the blanks. But for so many of us, we don't just walk into a life like that, do we? Maybe, maybe if you inherit a, a fortune or um, you win the lottery or something, but most of us, we have to work for that, right? And so we work, and we work, and we spend our lives working while so often looking to our neighbors and the culture around us as the benchmark for our worth and our social status. But maybe for you here today, maybe it's not necessarily even about the material possessions that you'll get or even the social standing that you'll achieve by climbing the ladder. Some of us are just addicted to work. Others of us, and I've been guilty of this myself, we're just so concerned with always appearing perfect before other people that we pour in long hours just to keep up with people's perception of us. Another way that biblical scholars and commentators kind of convey the idea of what Solomon's getting at here is through the idea of competition. In other words, in order to pursue success and achievement, we're always competing with other people. And I mean, you kind of see an element of that even just in the interview process, right? To get the job you want, you have to appear the best, outclass other people in order to obtain that position. But even beyond that, it's interesting, one of the fundamental elements of our capitalist economy is this idea of cooperative competition, right? If you're going to make it, you have to be able to stand up against the competition. And that's really interesting to me. Um, because Solomon takes a look at life and work and the nature of labor and work. And um, this is what he gets at. And it's interesting too. I read an article this week um, in Fast Company Magazine. Which is a business magazine. And then the title of the article was How Work became the millennial religion of choice. The title probably speaks for itself, um, but this, this writer <clears throat> kind of presents the idea that what he calls workism is the new religion of our society. In other words, even statistically based on uh, observing people in our society, um, people nowadays define themselves not by their family relationships, not by their communities or even their background necessarily or even their religion. People today define themselves by their job, by what they do, by what they're accomplishing. And the cost of this, he says in the article, is that with every decade, statistics show that stress levels in employees are continually rising. In other words, the more we buy into this idea that we are defined by what we do, what we can produce, how busy we can be all the time, the more busy and stressed we become. But even more than that, um, the article suggests too that this workism is it's fragmenting our society. In terms of human relationships, people are more isolated and lonely than ever before. And what's crazy to me about this is here's Solomon thousands of years ago looking at the nature of just work and observing it. And he says, if this is what work is about on this earth, under the sun, what's the point? If all it's about is keeping up 
outclassing other people, competing against one another, where is that going to get you besides the life of just constantly striving endlessly for what's next? But like any extreme example, there's always another side to this, which he points to in the next verse. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 5 says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. In other words, the fool, the other side of the fool, is the one who's totally indifferent, who could care less, who's okay with dropping out of life, who's okay with not ever exerting any kind of um, self-effort to sustain themselves in this life. And this person, he says, ultimately collapses within themselves, and the result is self-ruin. So these are two opposite extreme examples, right? But I think that they're actually kind of related. Both people are very concerned about themselves. And both are willing to use other people for self-gain. When self-interest becomes skewed, when self-interest becomes the driving, motivating factor of our lives, it can only result in the rupturing of community. And that's why Craig Bartholomew, who's a biblical scholar um, and director of the Kirby Lang Institute of Christian Faith, um, we can put that next quote up. He says this, reflecting on this verse. He says, Work is a God-given task by which we serve God, our neighbors, and the creation, and develop its potentials for the glory of God. Rivalry as the motivation for work violates the Tenth Commandment, denatures work, and destroys community. So what's the answer then? We don't want to end up like the fool, so we got to work. We have to work to sustain ourselves. And if work is a God-given task, is it really wrong to excel in what you do? Well, let's look at the next verse. He continues and says in verse 6, Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. If you define your life and find your identity in what you do, by constantly chasing success, striving for more, you're going to chase the wind, and you're never really going to be satisfied. On the other hand, if you're okay with just giving up on life and falling into maybe self-pity or apathy, you'll ruin yourself. So, like this passage says, it's better to have one hand full of peace and rest in your life rather than have both of your hands tied in the endless pursuit of more. I really like this aspect of Ecclesiastes. It it seems like the author kind of always comes back around in different parts of the book. Maybe you've seen this already or not. But he kind of always comes back to this idea of living your life and pursuing your life in some sort of balance. Being able to rest and enjoy your life, but also work hard and excel in what you do. That's not wrong. And so, when it comes to, you know, one handful of tranquility chasing after the wind, we're called to to strike a balance, seek for a balance in life. And I'll be honest with you, that's a really hard thing to do. Really hard. I, I, I struggle with this all the time. 
finding that balance between work and rest and managing your responsibilities. But I want to say this because I think it's really important to this subject. It is okay to be busy. But it is also just as okay to not be busy. There's going to be seasons in your life when you're busier than other times, right? I gave these examples in the first service, but if you're a, a tax, if you're an accountant and tax season rolls around, you're probably going to be busier during tax season than other times of the year. Or if you're a student in school and you have midterms or finals, you're probably going to be more busy during those weeks than other weeks of the semester. And on the other hand, sometimes we have seasons in our lives where we don't have as much responsibility. We have a little bit more time on our hands, and that's okay. It's okay to relax and rest. If your kids are grown up and out of the house, maybe in college or living you know, a life with their own family, pursuing a career, you might not have the responsibility of waking up in the middle of the night, changing diapers, rocking them back to sleep, um, or, or you know, shuffling your kids around between extracurricular activities. But that's okay. That's good. I think our problem is that oftentimes when we enter into a season of busyness, we take on the perspective that I just need to get through this. And once I'm on the other side of this, then I can rest. Then I can enjoy life. Then I can be with the people around me again. I'm really guilty of that. But on the other hand, I think that when we enter into a season of maybe having less responsibility or more time on our hands, we start to feel a little bit insecure, a little bit less valuable than all the other people around us who are doing so much more, especially when you hear a response like, man, I wish I had time to be able to do that kind of stuff. You probably heard that before. I know I have. As if you're supposed to feel guilty for having more time on your hands. But it's okay. Regardless of whatever season you might be in, somewhere somewhere in between, um, the point is that we seek a balance, right? Because the more balanced your life is with regard to work and rest and relationships, the more enjoyable it will be. That's kind of what he's getting at here. But he doesn't stop here. Solomon doesn't stop here. Because this doesn't really address the root of where he's going in these examples. And so in the next couple of verses, he says this. Again, I saw something under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, a miserable business. I really think that this example is kind of the culmination of the two that we saw before it. If you're consumed with constantly chasing success, or you're the other side of maybe totally dropping out, this is what you're left with. A man all alone. And what's interesting about this passage, I don't believe it's referring to a single person. I don't think it's referring to somebody who's you know, lost some family members or who grew up without any siblings. This person's in this situation because of the choices that they've made. In other words, as this passage kind of shows, it's, it's, the, fact that it's, it's the fact that he's not content. 
It's this restless desire for more that's constantly brought him back to the unfortunate position that he's in. And yet, and yet, he's at the top. He's got the wealth. He's still not content with it. And when he stops and he looks around, he's miserable. And he has nobody to enjoy his life with. And this really gets to the heart of what I think Solomon wants us to see in these examples. That when self-interest is central to your life and it's the motivating factor for all that you do, yes, it'll rupture community, but it'll also only lead toward isolation and loneliness. And I realize that this passage is mostly dealing with the example of work. But I really think that it can be applied to other aspects of our lives as well. You might be um, a single person and you've been kind of made to feel like until you have a spouse or who you have kids, you're not really worth the time. Or community is just something that will have to wait until you get into that season of your life. That's wrong. Or maybe you've been hurt by past relationships like we said in the beginning and like that Paul Simon song that we heard in the promo video Um, You feel like you need to keep people at a distance in order to protect yourself and keep yourself safe from any hurt that could happen in the future. Or maybe it's not that you don't have the time or the resources to put into building relationships, but you're just distracted. And you're filling that relational need in, in your life with entertainment or social media or something else. Or maybe... Your schedule is just too packed that you don't have time for other people. Wherever you might be in there, I think the point is clear that if the rhythms of your life are causing you to sacrifice or avoid relationships with people around you, Solomon is saying that uh, you're, you're, you're headed toward misery. And that that lifestyle is only going to lead toward isolation and loneliness and unfulfillment. So what's the answer? Well, let's look at this last section of verses for this passage. He says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Two are better than one. The answer to Solomon's search for significance and meaning in in these observations is found in the reality that community is better than competition. And companionship is far more fulfilling than a life that has no time for other people. And maybe you're with me on this, but one of the only places I've ever heard this passage talked about is in a marriage ceremony. Maybe you've used it in yours, I don't know. I think there's elements for sure that can be applied, but I don't think it's talking to married people necessarily, or about married people, I should say. So if you're single and you're looking at this like, yeah, of course two are better than one. And that's great for those who are married, but I'm single and I live alone. I don't know if I'll get married. 
It's okay. This is still for you. Because the point is about pursuing relationships with people around you, regardless of what state of life that you're in. And the image that's conveyed in these verses is that of companions traveling on a road together. And you can see that, you know, in what's said, there's the shared success of collaborating with one another. There's care and there's encouragement when you encounter a difficult or unfortunate situation. There's protection and aid when you, when you face danger or sickness or need. There's shared laughter, accountability, and the opportunity to know and be known by other people. And those are just a few of the benefits of what living life in, in relationship and life-giving community looks like. And can be. I'll never forget the first time that I felt like I began to experience what this idea of community looks like. Um, For those of you who don't know anything about my story, I grew up in the middle of the jungle of Papua New Guinea. I was born and raised in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. My parents were tribal church planting missionaries over there for the first half of my life. And that's what I knew. Um, for the first few years of my early teens, my, my family moved out of that location that they were in uh, to the mission boarding school. And I remember having a few friends there, but a big part of my life in my younger years, early teens, was that I had a ton of health issues and sicknesses um, that really limited me from participating in normal life. I couldn't play sports. Um, I was constantly in and out of school. Um, and my contact with people was often limited because of those things. And if that wasn't enough, I remember when I was 15, my family moved back to the United States for the first time. And I, was, I remember recovering from a serious string of health issues at that point. And I started into my junior year of high school in the American school system back here. And... Um, I had grown up in the middle of the jungle, and most of my life was comprised of sickness. I felt like I could not relate to a single person. And it proved pretty quickly that I couldn't. Um, I was made fun of a lot, misunderstood, and like anybody in that situation, I cut people out of my life. I isolated myself from relationships and just buried myself in studies and different things like that. I had no friends. When I graduated high school, though, I enrolled in a two-year Bible college in Wisconsin, and I just, I don't remember what changed, honestly. I think back to the time, I don't really remember what changed, but I remember that within the first couple weeks of of my experience there, I felt like I had had the best friends I had had my entire life. And over the next couple of years, those relationships began to deepen and develop, and I remember just feeling, as that happened, like I was coming more alive. See, I've been on both sides of the spectrum. I can promise you that what God's word says when it says that two are better than one, it's true. Community is always better than going it alone. Which is my why, my big idea and challenge for you today is very simple. Choose community. Choose 
community. There's a hundred reasons to do this. And you can look at the Bible all you want and find them. Um, A Canadian theologian and philosopher gives us some pretty good reasons in this next quote. He says, Good friends are as basic to life and health as knowing how to cup your hands when there's nothing else to drink from. The most self-loving action any of us can perform in a lifetime is learning how to develop and sustain close friendships. Choose community. None of us are too important or busy in our lives to love and be loved by another. None of us are too busy or important to know and be known by others. It's not going to always be convenient. I promise you that, but I also promise you that it will always be worth it. And the better part of this is that this is one of the reasons we're created. God created us in such a way that we thrive and we're most satisfied in our lives when we are connected to one another. And if you're a believer here this morning and you've accepted and put your faith in Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of your sin, we are united in Christ. And because of what he's done for us in his death and his resurrection, we hold the most important aspect of our lives in common. That's incredible. We hold the most important aspect of our lives in common, which means that the groundwork is already laid for life-giving, authentic community to begin. So as we close out the service, and I'll invite the band to come forward, I want to challenge you with a couple questions to take with you today in regard to this subject. The first one is this. Where will you choose community today? For some of you, this just looks like committing to actually do it. You have the time and the resources right now in your life, but it just, it just means stepping out and taking that step to involve yourself in some different opportunities to build relationships with people around you. This isn't a, a sermon about community groups, but I'm, but I'm going to tell you that we do have a few of those meeting throughout the summer. And I want to encourage you that if you want to get more plugged in with people, that is an incredible place to start. So talk to me if you're interested. Others of you uh, taking that step might be, might be a little bit more complex. Your, your schedule is very demanding. Or maybe the idea of community hasn't really been on your radar up to this point. I want to challenge you. Think through your priorities. Maybe reorganize. Maybe make some sacrifices where you can in order to make sure the relationships with others are at the top of the list. And then the second question is this. How can you be a source of community for someone else? Some of us here have those relationships that we're talking about. They're deep. And you're very involved with a group of people who know you and who you know very well. That's great. And we celebrate that. That's what it's about. But at the same time, I want to remind all of us that community is also not just about me and the relationships that I can feed off of. It's about being that for other people as well. So I want to encourage you to take a look around you. Take a look around your community and pray and think about how you can be that for someone else as well. Let's choose community today and watch what God will do in our midst. Let's pray. 
Lord, we give you the glory today, and we thank you for uh, the way that you've created us to enjoy life together. And we thank you for the reality that because of what Christ has done for us, we're united in him, and we can enjoy uh, this shared fellowship and relationship. We pray that, God, this church would be a beacon of hope and light to our community that demonstrates uh, unity and diversity and a place where people can come and feel welcome and known every time they step into these, these doors and into our community groups outside of here. God, we love you and we thank you for what you've done. We pray that we would live into these truths this morning and that you would be lifted high and glorified. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stay with us?